Good afternoon. So good to see so many of you. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. What is it about who is in the place of power that stirs up so much interest? What is it about who has the authority that makes people so invested positively or negatively, that causes so much impassioned conversing, campaigning, and corroborating? Think about the extreme measures people will go to make sure who gets in power is the person they want. Think about the most recent U.S. presidential elections. Who can forget it? Think about the most recent SBC presidential election if you're into that stuff. It's because who rules or who has the authority makes all the difference of how people under their rule will be represented and ultimately it will determine at least in some way or another how they will live. Good benevolent rulers benefit and prosper his or her people. Evil, oppressive rulers suffer and fail his or her people. Think about the countless examples of good and terrible leadership throughout history. Good or bad leaders have many times determined either the success or the downfall of a nation or a group of people or an organization for generations. A nation or a people are very much at the helm of those who are in power and those who rule and exercise authority over them. The topic of our passage this afternoon is the anointed king. So some of these questions may be relevant to our text. Who is this king? Why is he so important? What does he have to do with us? And these three questions will be the guiding uh, points to help us uh, as we explore our passage together. We're continuing our intermittent series, Summer in the Psalms, where each summer we hope to cover 10 psalms for the next 15 years, Lord willing, to cover all 150 psalms should the Lord tarry and give us more years uh, at New Covenant Baptist Church. And two weeks ago, I encouraged all of us to get in the habit of reading through the entire book of Psalms each summer. Let's make that a habit. So 50 short chapters a month for June, July, and August. And if you haven't started yet, you still have 10 days left in June. So just read five chapters each day. They're very short. Then you can meditate more slowly through July and August by reading one to two chapters each day. Anyways, to give you some context, uh, the book of Psalms is a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew lyrical poems, songs, and prayers spanning about a thousand years written by various authors, mostly King David. The book has a very unique design and message that you won't necessarily get unless you read it in its entirety, cover to cover. That's why I'm encouraging us to read it together uh, over the, uh, the period of the summer, the whole book. The book is divided into five large sections, so book one through five. So let me just give you the chapters breakdown, even though I did that uh, two weeks ago, just for you to get again. Chapters three uh, through 41 is book one. Chapters 42 through 72 is book two. Chapters 73 through 89, book three. Chapters 90 to 106, book four. And chapters 107 to 145, book five. And the final five chapters is the climactic ending, which are called poems of praise. And each of these five psalms ends with the word hallelujah, calling the readers uh, to praise Yah or praise our covenant-keeping God. Well, what is the book of Psalms calling God's people to praise Him for? We see that the psalms of this book falls into two main categories. Every single psalm falls generally into these two categories, the psalms of lament and the psalms of praise. And the Psalms teaches us readers how we ought to properly respond, 
living in a world full of brokenness and pain and evil that is all around. So even in the midst of such trials and suffering, it teaches us, God's people, to remember who God is, to remember his faithfulness and his promises, teaching us to hope ultimately not in the things of this world, not in the people of this world or princes of this world, but in the one true coming Messiah, King, Jesus Christ. Amen? The first two Psalms, which serves as the introduction of this entire book, begins with a focus on him. In Psalm 1, the blessed man in whom we see his righteous way, his delightful truth, and his prosperous life is indeed the God-man, Jesus Christ. And spoiler alert, if you didn't get it yet, the anointed king in whom all who take refuge in him are blessed is also speaking of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Well, even with the spoiler, even with the punchline exposed, what can we learn about him? This afternoon from Psalm 2, I want to share with you four realities of our anointed king and how who he is affects how we live as Christians. Here's the outline so you know where we're headed. He is the rejected king, point number one. He is the promised king, point number two. He is the revealed king, point number three. And fourth, he is the patient king, point number four. Rejected, promised, revealed, and patient king. Psalm 2 is often known in the Psalter in the category of royal psalms, which primarily concern the human kings of Judah who understand themselves to be uniquely authorized and empowered as God's adopted sons who would lead and represent God's people. Along with psalms, the other psalms in this category, Psalm 2 provides for us insight into the understanding of the Jerusalem kingship, how the kings understood themselves, how they understood their authority, their roles, and their hopes. However, Psalm 2 offers us something more substantial, more significant than merely about human kings of David's dynasty. In the aftermath of the exile of the Jewish people with the destruction of their national identity and hopes of Judah's revival, many of these psalms took on new life of messianic hope and expectations, eschatological hope, the hope of certain coming promised in Christ, the coming Messiah. What the human kings of Israel and Judah were unable to do God would accomplish through his anointed one, the Messiah. Hence, psalms like these were particularly important and relevant in times of trouble. So, if you are here today needing a reminder, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of weariness or discouragement or sorrow, be reminded today, be reminded this afternoon that he has come and is coming again. Amen? What better reminder, brothers and sisters, than the promise that we have a sovereign king who sits on his heavenly throne and is in control. Hallelujah. One commentator notes that Psalm 2 is clearly structured by four voices. First, the voice of the psalmist from verses 1 through 3. The voice of God the Father, verses 4 through 6. The voice of God the Son, verses 7 through 9. And the voice of God the Holy Spirit, 10 through 12. So my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, here this afternoon, the comforting words of our Heavenly Father, And I pray that through this word, you'll be challenged and encouraged afresh to look to him who is our joy, our strength, our hope, and as the psalm concludes, our refuge. So look with me to Psalm 2 and follow along as I read Psalm chapter 2. It says this, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart 
and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Who is our anointed king? Point number one, he is first the rejected king from verses one through three. Look with me to verses one through three. It says this again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The question that the psalmist presents is a rhetorical question rather than an inquiry. The answer is already given, that the attempt of the nations to rage against him and the peoples plotting against him is indeed vain. Their attempts are feeble. Their efforts are completely, entirely meaningless. So who and why are they raging? Who and why are they plotting? The word plotting is the same word, did you know, as meditate in Psalm 1. So the meaning is while the righteous meditate on God's word day and night, The wicked, instead, rather, are meditating on evil schemes. Verse 2 tells us the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed. Of course, in Hebrew literary form, the idea that kings and rulers and nations and peoples reference are all people, all powers, all authorities of the earth. And here's an interesting exposition of the wicked of Psalm 1 verse 1. The metaphorical men and women who walks in the counsel of the wicked, who stands in the way of sinners, who sits in the seat of scoffers are here in Psalm 2 verse 2, visualized in the historical setting, coming together, counseling together, setting themselves up or in the CSB translation, which says the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against who? Against the Lord, against his anointed God and his anointed one, they conspire against and take their stand against. And in the context of the psalm and for the sake of directness, there is no mistake whatsoever that the author of this psalm, King David, has no mere future human king in mind, but rather in Hebrew, the Messiah, in Greek, the Christ. And we know for sure as the Bible references this very verse in multiple places in the New Testament in reference to Jesus, the anointed one of God. So you could reference later, you could write these verses down and look it up later. Acts 13.33, Hebrews 1.5, Hebrews 5.5 to name a few. Well, why are the nations, the kings, the rulers, and all the peoples of the earth who are so often at war with one another, instead of warring with one another, who are so frequently often divided amongst each other, united for this one particular cause. In this one cause, which the psalmist emphasizes, is in vain. It's meaningless. It shows us just how foolish these people are, doesn't it? It reveals to us how obvious these people's stupidity is, doesn't it? 
Psalm 83 verses 2 through 5 is cross-referenced and it helps us to explain why these people collude against God in futility. It says this in Psalm 83 verses 2 through 5. See how your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have acted arrogantly. They devise clever schemes against your people. They conspire against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation so that Israel's name will be no longer remembered. For they have conspired with one mind. They form an alliance against you. Pay attention to the reasons why. It is their hatred toward God. It is their arrogance or pride against God. You see, since the fall of man in Genesis 3, when man and woman chose deliberately to disobey and distrust God's word, this has been the nature and attitude of fallen and sinful humanity. It wasn't just Adam and Eve who made this foolish decision, you see. Adam and Eve's willful choice to rebel against God is an everyday picture of you and I. Sin is rebellion against God, the Bible is clear. It is our rejection of God because what we are saying in our disobedience of God is I trust in myself more than I trust in you. It's that simple, you see. Sin, also in the blunt words of our former pastor, Mark Dever, is stupid. Sin is simply stupid. And stupidity is the picture we get in verse 1, 2, 2, 1 and 2, when the people of the earth conspire and stand against God in vain. That's what verse 3 says, doesn't it? The reason why they were rebelling is because they said to themselves, look at verse 3, it says, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, the desire of the enemies of God was for autonomy, for independence. It's pictured as tearing off the chains and freeing themselves from restraints. Simply for those who rebel against God, his dominion, his rule, his authority was seen as nothing more than slavery. How ironic is it, isn't it? For those of us who would consider it a privilege to be called God's bond servants, sinners instead stupidly think that God's laws hold them captive. When in actuality, it is their rebellion against God, their rejection of God that holds them hostage with no chance whatsoever for probation. In their blindness by sin, they couldn't see that the very one who liberates them was the very one they raged against, whom they wanted to cut all ties with which in turn plunge themselves deeper into bondage. Now, you may ask, when did all of this happen? In the psalm, uh, referring to a specific time in history when the nations, kings, rulers, and the peoples of the earth gathered to plot against God. When did this happen? Right? Well, I don't think it's referring to one instance, but many countless ongoing instances of human rebellion against God. The psalmist is simply referring to mankind's worldwide rejection of God. So it, it comes in different forms. It's mankind's worship of all kinds of false gods rather than, than the one true God. It's the nation's willingness to make war on God's chosen people. And even in the way that God's own people reject God's chosen servants, David, and eventually, ultimately, Jesus, and all who claim the name of Christ. Many, even God's own people, have rejected in history. For example, in verses 1 and 2, uh, it's referencing Acts chapter 4, verses 25 through 27 in the New Testament, about a thousand years later after this psalm was written, when Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel after Jesus' resurrection. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, just having quoted Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 in Acts 4, 25 and 26, in verse 27, it says this, For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. In other words, 
in referencing Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2, it was not a surprise to Peter and to John that they would be persecuted. It was not a surprise to God who had predestined and ordained such persecution that leaders and peoples of the earth would come together against God's servants and ultimately against God's anointed Jesus, that our God and His anointed are rejected is no surprise and is not a hindrance to the progress of God's kingdom and His gospel. Did you know so many times in history, attempts have been made to thwart God's gospel advance, to burn and destroy Christianity from the face of the earth? One story tells of a Roman Empire at the end of his reign, Emperor Diocletian, who lived in A.D. 284 through 305. He prided himself and set up two massive pillars, it's told in history, in Spain, declaring his personal proud achievement, victory over Jesus. And in these uh, two massive pillars, the inscriptions read these words, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Hercules, Caesarius, Augusti, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of gods. Nevertheless, even a man who prided himself in destroying, abolishing the superstition of Christ everywhere, only seven years later, it's told in history, right? that Constantine comes to the throne and he makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Brothers and sisters, Christianity did not die. Christianity still lives on. For 2,000 years since Jesus Christ rose up from the grave, his people have been gathering together Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and that is the reason why we have gathered this afternoon. Amen? Although the world rejects God and his anointed Christ lives on and his kingdom will continue on. Amen? Amen. So brothers and sisters, rest assured, no politician, no president, no king, no emperor, no dictator, no constitutional amendment, no cultural revolution, no personal rejection will thwart the will and progress of God's kingdom. How can you personally apply this reality? Know that in your life, God's will will prevail. He will persevere you in your faith. If you are genuinely a true child of God, he who began a good work will bring it to completion. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. This truth also reminds us to persevere in our evangelism, doesn't it? Don't be discouraged when people reject you of your sharing of the gospel. Receive, welcome that kind of persecution in your life. Keep reading, keep praying, keep preaching. They rejected Jesus, but ultimately Jesus won. So the Bible says, the word of God will never return empty, according to Isaiah 55, 11. You faithfully read his word. He faithfully purifies and transforms and sanctifies your heart and mind. You faithfully pray. You place yourself in a posture of humility. He faithfully increases, strengthens, and fills you up with his spirit, his boldness, and his joy. You faithfully proclaim his gospel. He faithfully saves and draws men to himself who are his who is our God? Our God is not only the rejected king, but point number two, he is the promised king. Look at verses four through six. Now listen to the voice of God the Father as he responds to the enemy's war challenge. Verses four through six, he says this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy 
The contrast of God the Father's response to the enemy's conspiring and plotting and colluding is quite terrifying, but it's also very intriguing. This is the only time in Scripture the Bible speaks of God laughing. Now just picture how God might laugh. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> okay. It must make heaven resound, doesn't it? How would God laugh? Well, we should also notice what kind of laughter this is. This is not a simple giggle because something cute or mildly funny happened. Giggle. This is not a knee slapping something hilarious happened belly laugh. This is not a nervous cackle or a chuckle. This may be more like a snicker. It's in response to the absurdity of the enemy's challenge. These verses are full of ironies, you see. The Lord, God the Father, is laughing at the enemies, but he holds them in derision. In another translation, it says the Lord ridicules them. So, is this laughter one of a mocking tone, perhaps? Verse 5 says, He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Okay, so we're getting the picture that God is in heaven, perhaps upset, perhaps angry. Yet, verse 4 tells us he is sitting. He is calm. Someone who is upset isn't sitting. Someone who is furious isn't laughing. So what do we make of this sitting and laughing and mocking and terrifying scene and the mind of God? Like, How do we make sense of this in these verses? I think the picture is one of sovereignty, one of control. I think the picture is one of justice and mercy. Righteous indignation, but full of composure and control. It's a picture of God's full and complete confidence in his own redemption, salvation plan. And verse 6 is the answer to this confounding mystery. You expect someone who is angry to respond in retaliation. You expect God who is comparatively so much more powerful to flex his omnipotence. Yet our God doesn't counter in expected brutality. His response is verse 6. Look with me. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The phrase, as for me, I, is an emphatic personal pronoun. God the Father is saying, I myself, nobody else, no other God, no other thing, no other king, not a human king, not a king who will fail, not a king who will be overcome by temptation, not a king who will go astray, not a king who will not obey. The phrase, have set, means installed, consecrated, or set apart. So God is saying, I myself have set apart, consecrated, installed, placed my king on Zion, on my holy hill. Are you getting the picture? I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. Here's my plan. Here's my solution. Here's my response. Here is my king. You can't touch him. He is unstoppable, you see. This is whom Isaiah wrote of in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. It says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. 
and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carve dolls, idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things now I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Did you get it? That this anointed king, whom the Lord himself sets apart, installed, consecrated, set apart, is written in past tense, you see. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Brothers and sisters, what this means is this anointed king is already there. You didn't know it. You couldn't even imagine it. But he has been there all along on my holy hill. He is from eternity past. He is the promised Messiah of Genesis chapter 3. He is the prophesied Messiah of Isaiah 6. He is the one whom over 300 messianic prophecies of the Old Testament speaks of over and over and over again. Who is he? He is the promised king. Who is he more specifically? Exactly. So you don't have to guess. Point number three. The revealed king. Look at verses 7 through 9. It says this. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessels. Now listen to the voice of God the son as he recalls from eternity future. What God the father declared was the son's purpose, identity, destiny, and authority. So, his purpose. I will tell of his decree. The original meaning of the word tell is also can be translated declare or proclaim. The anointed king's purpose is to declare the decrees of God the Father, to communicate his laws as they should be understood, to recount exactly how God's commands should be spoken. This is why he who is the anointed one in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, recalling the prophecy written of him in Isaiah 61, declares this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is his identity? It says right there, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you, right? In that verse, this verse is cited numerous times in the New Testament. Acts 13, verses 32 through 33. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Hebrews 1, verse 5. But nowhere else more clear than in his baptism and transfiguration. In Matthew 3, 17 and Matthew 17, 5. Who is this son exactly, specifically? The voice of God confirms this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The anointed king. The anointed king is none other than the son of God himself, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Is that amazing? My goodness. I got really excited. What is his destiny? 
Look at verse 8. Ask of me, and I'll make nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus' destiny is to rule God's kingdom for all eternity. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33 says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now you may be puzzled by the first phrase, ask of me. Who is asking who? And why is he asking? Well, write down these verses, and when you have a chance, look them up this afternoon or this evening. Isaiah 53, 12. John 17, Romans 8, verses 26 through 27, Romans 8, verse 34, and Hebrews 7, 25. Brothers and sisters, it is Jesus' intercession which is the hope of this world. It is Jesus' prayer for us that ensures our salvation, our sanctification, and our perseverance to final glory. In John 17, Jesus prays for us in verses 8 through 10. For I have given them the words that you have given me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Did you also notice the ironies of all ironies in verse 8, you can't miss it. What am I going to share? Suspense is building up. What is the ironies of all ironies in verse 8? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. Brothers and sisters, the very nations who are raging against him, the very nations who are plotting against him, the very enemies of God are made his heritage. All of them. They are made his to the ends of the earth, people of every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. And this is what Romans 5.10 means. While we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Hallelujah. Amen. Brothers and sisters, are you thankful for his words declared to us? Are you thankful for his prayers for us? Are you thankful that he saved us despite our continuous outright rebellion? Are you thankful for this air conditioning that's blowing finally? And notice, brothers and sisters, his authority. Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The word break in that phrase is a similar word used in Psalm 23, that famous psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And the intended meaning of that phrase there, makes me lie down, is portraying the picture that stupid sheep don't want to lay down. Stupid sheep want to wander and stray off, but the good shepherd makes them lie down and rest in order that the sheep, the stupid sheep, may be restored. So the phrase, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, carries that similar idea. The evil, rebellious sinners, stupid sheep like you and me, need to be broken, you see. We need to be ruled with this rod and iron, you see. It's the imagery referenced in Revelation 2.27 and Revelation 12.5 and Revelation 19.15 that God will exercise good and righteous authority. Listen, the idea of authority in our culture is sadly generalized in a negative way in our day, in our Me Too world. 
But by, but the authority that the Bible speaks of is good and right and just authority. This is why the Bible commends biblically qualified local church affirmed elders to lead the church. As you trust in God, as you trust human pastors to lead with faithfulness as under shepherds, as you trust with prayer and encouragement, accountability, Jeremy and I, you can trust that God is sovereignly leading this church and leading you and me. This is why also God's design for men and women in the home and in the local church, what we also called complementarianism is good. That men and women are equally created in nature, value and dignity in the image of God, but have different roles, complementary to one another for human flourishing, for edification of the church and for the glory of God. Now, I don't want to stray too far, but know and understand biblical authority is good. Jesus' authority, his rule is good. In fact, in short, his purpose, his identity, his destiny, his authority is altogether good news, the best news you will ever hear. Amen? That God, who is holy and just, created all things in his love for his own glory, for our good pleasure. But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to trust in ourselves, wanting to be gods unto ourselves, deliberately disobeying God's word. As a result, we were separated from God, completely helpless and incapable of saving ourselves from the dissatisfying and vain power and curse of sin. But God, in his mercy, had a plan from the very beginning, from eternity past, to redeem man and woman and forgive us of our sins. How did he do it? By sending his own son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died, he took our place as a substitute on the cross. He paid our debt that we should have paid in eternal hell. They thought he was dead. They put him in the grave. They thought the the story was over, but it wasn't over, was it? Because on the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death, which meant that God accepted his sacrifice, which meant that Christ defeated sin, Satan, and death forever. And whosoever would repent and believe in him will not die and go to hell, but participate in his resurrection and live the abundant life here on earth and forevermore. And when he returns on that final day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is indeed the anointed one of God, the rejected, the promised, revealed son of God. But until he returns, he is still yet more. Fourth and finally, and most briefly, point number four, He is the patient king. Look at verses 10 through 12. It says this. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The voice of the Holy Spirit now speaks to you and me. True to his character, gentle and patient, he speaks a solemn warning to those who would yet refuse to hear. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. He says, be warned. Here is a reminder that God is patient with you yet. If you yet do not know him as Lord and Savior, simply the message for you this afternoon, be warned. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Why? Because to be a child of God is an amazingly awesome privilege. To be a Christian is to know true humility. There is not an ounce of arrogance, not one ounce of pride, or there ought not to be in the Christian because he knows that pride comes before the fall. He says, the Spirit says, kiss the Son. The word Son is in Aramaic, and the word can be translated sincerely or purely, either way, and it's a sign simply of 
loyal and humble submission to a king, to the king, to the anointed king of kings. You see how all things are coming together? Even with the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes we, st- we just studied were the characteristics of kingdom citizens. And the psalm today ends with what phrase? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, those who know the blessed one will find refuge, not wrath. Rest, not judgment. Restoration, not punishment. Righteousness, not wickedness. If you're not a Christian here today, we're so thankful that you are here. Welcome. Thank you so much for visiting us. But if you do not know Jesus as the Christ, the anointed king, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you this afternoon, let it be the day you repent of your sins, believe that Jesus has rose again from the grave, and I pray and I encourage you to trust him as your Lord and Savior today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you and honor you that you are indeed the anointed king, that you are the rejected, revealed, promised, patient king who waits for us, who breaks us and shapes us and restores us, who builds us up until that final day of your return. Father, until that day, may we, the people of God, have bold confidence that you are true and you are alive. May we unashamedly claim this good news wherever we go to whomever we meet. Father, if there's any of us here who proclaim to be children of God, may they join a local church that they may not walk this race, that they may not run this race, they may not fight the good fight alone. But Father, with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, who will remind them of the truth, the good news of Jesus Christ. May you unite us in the Spirit of God, by the power of God, by the power of your word. May we ever stand so boldly and firmly secure in our anointed king, who is our solid ground. Father, we praise you and thank you for the reminder of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.